Well, this morning we get to study together a great passage in Philippians and a great passage in our Bibles, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 of Philippians. What uh, the Apostle Paul does in these verses is commend to the Christians in this church community at Philippi and to us a Christ-like attitude, the kind of attitude that fosters togetherness, a spirit of unity. It's wonderful stuff, what Paul writes. Let's enjoy it and be transformed by God as we read and study his word together. Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word and we trust he'll speak to us and change us through it. This uh, past week I've uh, been down in London and uh, I hit Oxford Circus Tube Station at 6 o'clock on Thursday night. I had 20 minutes to get to Victoria to catch the Gatwick Express, to get to Gatwick to catch a plane that I was late for. Two stops on the Victoria line. Problem, there were 10 million people in the underground station. At least it felt like it. Now, rush hour on the tube in London is typically not characterised by a servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial attitude to one's fellow humanity. Uh, apart from once in my experience, when the bombs hit London in July 2007, I was on the Northern Line, two, three stops back from the bomb, and all of a sudden, life changed for an hour. But by last Thursday, we were back to head down, single-minded, steely determination, to make sure you got on the tube and no one else did. I wonder if churches sometimes feel a little like that. Here's a few illustrations I've dug up in my preparation this week. And let me underscore, not from this church. One, 
Minister gently asks Convener of Flower Committee if they can move the flower stand two feet to accommodate a new display board. Over my dead body came the reply. Not perhaps the kind of servant-hearted, sacrificial, loving attitude that fosters togetherness. I wonder if that minister stored up the line just in case there was a subsequent funeral. Or a church, this is true, I guess they're both true, a church that had two Christmas trees every year because there were two groups of people with very different ideas as to how you should decorate a Christmas tree. Attempts had been made over the years to reconcile Committee A and Committee B, but war had always ensued. Silly examples, aren't they? But all over churches, these are just the kind of things that breed a spirit of disunity or even mayhem. Now, just to underscore my underscore, we don't have a scary convener of a flower committee. We have the most amenable, wonderful flower arrangers who allow me to move their flowers around the church all over the place and they just don't mind. And we have one Christmas tree every year. Now, two points on the service sheet. Simple points. Very um, true and powerful, though, nonetheless. One, a servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial attitude to one another. That's what is commended. Second, just like Jesus. First then, a servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial attitude to one another. Now let me read again verses 1 of 4. And listen as I read verses 1 of 4. Listen to the stuff that God does in us. And then the stuff that we are to do. Verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, try to get in your minds first the stuff that God has done in you if you are a Christian. And he begins by a very, very radical and, and wonderful thing. He says, if you're a Christian, you have been united with Christ. That is a, a God-given, essential unity, such that Jesus Christ is your brother. That you have the rights and the privileges of the Lord Jesus. Moreover, Paul says, you have experienced Christ's love. Paul is not speaking so much of a feeling as to a fact of what it means to be a recipient of Christ's love. You have received the effect of the sacrificial love that has forgiven your sin. Next, Paul says, you have fellowship with the Spirit, if you're a Christian, the indwelling of God in your life. And that means uh, your mind, your body, it is physical. It is physical if God takes up residence in your life. You are a physical being. God is inside of you. What does the indwelling Spirit do to you? He changes you. You cannot but be changed if God takes up residence in your body. It's impossible not to be changed. 
you're a true Christian. And one aspect of that change is uh, the end of verse 1, tenderness and compassion. The indwelling spirit fashions tenderness and compassion in the Christian. And it's logically true, isn't it? When grace impacts a life, when grace gets a grip of someone, when the Holy Spirit indwells someone, that grace, that character of Jesus begins to flow out from the life. Now, it's really important we we understand this. If you're a Christian, this is what God has done in you. That is God's work in your life. Paul kind of tries to, to, to sort of add one step at a time. He says, if you have been united with Christ, if you have experienced the love of Christ, if God has taken up residence in you, in the Holy Spirit, and he's made you tender, and he's made you compassionate, you ready? Then he says, well, do this stuff. And he says, verses 2 to 4, B, this is the command, like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of envy or arrogance or conceit. Consider others. Look to the interests of others. Now, how do we square this paradox? What God has done in us and what we are to do. Well, think of it like this. You might refer to an athlete or a singer's God-given talent. But they've got to work out that talent. They've got to train. They need discipline and they need effort. Those of you who are students, God may have blessed some of you with so much talent that you do not need to study in the library, but most of you do not have that kind of talent. I never did. You've got to graft. You've got to work it out. And it's true in the Christian life. As Christians, we have great potential, but the Christian life is a battle between our fallen human nature and our life in the Spirit. It is a battle between pride and humility for us all. It is a battle between ambition and selflessness. And that battle is won every day when we come back to the Lord Jesus, when we read our Bibles and we pray. It's been said that the application of every sermon is either A, Jesus, or B, read your Bible and pray. You could do pretty well every Sunday if you went home with two applications in your mind. Be like Jesus. Focus your life on him. Put your confidence in him. And read your Bible and pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day is how you work out what God has put into you. Just glance forward to chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work at it. And as you work at it, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is at work in you but you've got to work out that salvation. Great, great principle for the Christian life. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, Paul's concern for this church at Philippi, and remember he's writing to a church fellowship, to a local church, is that they remain united, that they stay together. And that's been a theme, as we've seen, running right through the letter. And Paul makes that point again here in verse 2. He says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Paul is not saying that all the Christians in a church should agree on everything. That is impossible. He's not saying that everyone should have exactly the same opinion. What he is saying is, do not let these differences divide you. 
He says, come to a mind. Love one another. Be united in spirit. That means be united by the gospel, the word of God, and in purpose. One mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose, one vision. And uh, to that end, Paul identifies some attitudes and actions that undermine that spirit of togetherness, break it down, and on the other hand, some attitudes and actions that build it up. So, the negatives are in the first half of verse 3, selfish ambition, vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And uh, that kind of attitude and the actions that result, it's true, I think, that an attitude always issues in actions, what we say, what we do. That kind of attitude obviously brings disunity. The positive, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the kind of stuff that promotes togetherness. Let me give some applications in different areas, say, of church life. Music might be a good example. Um, That is an area which can and sometimes does lead to disunity in a church. Let me underscore again, not here. We've got a really great team who lead our music. And one of the principles they run with is to do that which builds up unity in the church. Let me explain. We all have different preferences. You love what you love to sing. I love what I love to sing. A church which is strong is one where you love to sing what I love to sing. And I love to sing what you love to sing, even if I don't love to sing what you love. You see the point? Even if I can understand why you love to sing what you love to sing. What a powerful attitude it is, isn't it, to come into a church and say, I I just love to see these people loving to sing these things, even though I don't like it. That's what looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others mean. And that's why in our services we have three services where there is a mixture of styles of song and hymn because it promotes togetherness. Now your preferences might be over other things, maybe length of sermons. Maybe you like a ten minute sermon. I can't see us doing that. Or a 40 minute sermon. We think 29 minutes is spot on. Or the kind of coffee we drink. Or the version of the Bible we use. All sorts of stuff. What is the attitude that builds unity? Or when Paul talks about selfish ambition, in whose heart does there not lurk the propensity for selfish ambition, the desire for status and influence? And such politics find their way into church fellowships or CUs, I guess. Now this is a true uh, story. A theological college in Australia experiencing a cash flow crisis. The college authorities appealed for students in the college to take on the task of cleaning the college to save them $10,000 a year. Students signed up on the list voluntarily for every task bar one, the cleaning of the toilets. For two or three weeks, appeals were made but no one came forward. Strangely, though, the toilets remained clean every 
15. Early one morning, one of the students went down to the basement and found the principal of the college on his hands and his knees, scrubbing the loos. Shocked that someone had discovered that it was him. Selfless, sacrificial service for the sake of others. And you see the, 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 the impact of that. Of course, there's a, a weak side of this, doing it to be seen, that's uh, pride, isn't it? Reverse. Or who do you spend time with in a church or a CU? Such actions reveal the attitude of our hearts. It's great for me as minister to be encouraged by the genuine servant-hearted sacrificial attitude I see in small groups. Just the little things, people uh, running people to hospital appointments, that kind of thing, going with them to that kind of thing. Practical things, meals, care, unseen stuff, servant-heartedness, all of it builds unity in a church community. And what does Paul mean by vain conceit? He means, I think, an arrogance, a stubbornness, a sense of superiority, pride, I am right and everyone else is wrong. If you think that, risk doesn't bubble up in your mind and heart like mine. Well, I'm sure it does at us all. Paul's antidote, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, what Paul has to say here about unity and the actions and attitudes that either undermine or promote it covers a multitude of areas of life, big and small. It runs beyond church life to issues like marriage and relationships. What makes a good marriage? Look, not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. What makes a good relationship in its early days? Look, not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. It's true. Big and small issues in church life, and of course it's relevant to our present circumstances. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, pride or arrogance. Who among us is immune from such risks? Who among us is immune from such risks as the months go on from here. Paul says, knowing our hearts, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better. Each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul knows, and you know, and I know, that kind of stuff builds togetherness. Now, verses 5 to 11. Servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial attitude to one another, just like Jesus. Verses 5 to 11. Those of you here who are biblical scholars, some of you are studying theology, you know that verses 5 to 11 of Philippians 2 is just big deal stuff in theology. Books after books after books. The people do PhDs on the dot in verse 9. And I have the crassness to give this title to it, just like Jesus. Why is it here in Philippians though? Paul said, live like this with one another. You want an example? Jesus is your man. Be just like him. That's why these verses are here in Philippians. It's great theology, but the point is just like him. What a fantastic role model he is. If you want an example to look up to and imitate in the world of golf, I've told you before that Justin Rose is your man. If you want a concert pianist to aspire to, Lang Lang is my pick. 
If you want an example as a Christian of attitude and actions that foster togetherness in a church community, Jesus is your man. But there is a big difference between a sports star and Jesus. There are many. Here's one. There is a big difference between a concert pianist and Jesus. And that difference is this. Try as you might, you will never swing a club like Justin Rose. Try as you might, you will never, ever play the piano like Lang Lang. Because you just do not have the raw talent. However many balls you hit in the range, however many hours you practice at the keyboard, you will never, ever be anything like them. But with Jesus, according to Paul and the Lord Jesus himself, our attitude can be the same as him. Why? Because we are united with him. Now connect in your minds verses 5 and 1. Look at 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What has Paul said in verse 1? If you have any encouragement from being united with him. You and his family. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Can you be like him? Yes, you can. You can think like him, act like him, speak like him. A servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial attitude to one another, just like him. That is not a pipe dream, it's not pie in the sky. Here's a great uh, prayer for us to pray each day. May the mind of Christ my Saviour, we'll sing it later, live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. It's a powerful, powerful prayer that a Christian can pray each day. Now verses uh, 6 to 11 we can divide into two parts. Verses 6 to 8 what Jesus did and verses 9 to 11 what God did. Let's look first at what Jesus did 6 to 8. Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Now the essence of what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, who is in very nature God, Jesus who is divine, Jesus who is one with God the Father, Jesus who is one in terms of the eternal existence of God, that man consciously, actively, took upon himself a servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial attitude for the sake of others. That point is really important. It's not that Jesus, when he came to live on earth as a human being, and gave his life on a cross, stopped being God. It's not that he, he left his divinity somewhere behind him in heaven. The point is, when we look at Jesus, the model of humility and love and self-sacrifice for the sake of others, we are looking at the attitude and the actions of God. It's how God is. It's what God is like. And therefore, if we are united with him, it is what we, and I stumbled in this in the first service, in my notes it says, it is what we should be like. Let me change that as I did then. It is what we are like if we're Christians. Not the exceptional Christian. 
It's the normal Christian because we are united with him. That's what Jesus did. And what did God do? Verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there's a whole lot of theology in there. Let me simplify right down to God the Father and God the Son. What Jesus did, he did this. He showed this selfless, humble, sacrificial, loving attitude to others. And what did God the Father do? God the Father was pleased. He was pleased with him. He said, he said, well done, Jesus. He was pleased with him. And he exalted him. He gave him crown. He became king of kings. He reigns now. And that act of exalting Jesus because of his servant-hearted sacrificial service means that God, in a sense, put a seal on what Jesus did and said, Jesus, what you did by your actions, by your servant heart, by your love for the sake of others, what a wonderfully purposeful thing that was. It brought forgiveness, it brought a gospel, it brought reconciliation, and it, and it gives us something to proclaim over all the earth let me jump back to our attitudes and actions imitating Jesus. Why should we look not only to our own interests but to the interests of others? For what purpose? What is the end in view of our actions? Well, Philippians says it is for the sake of the gospel. Look not to your own interests but to the interests of others. A servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial attitude to one another in a church community is ultimately for the sake of the gospel. Why do it? Why act like this? Well, for the sake of the gospel. That's why as elders we are committed as a church family to stay together why is that? Well, because we don't want to split. Why do we not want to split? Because our fellowship is important to us. But more importantly than that, for the sake of the gospel. And Paul says, if you're going to do that, all of you, he says, all of you, no pride, no high and mightiness, no sense that I am right. One spirit, one love, one purpose, one vision for the sake of the gospel in this community. And of course, Jesus is now in glory where one day we will be with him. Each of us will stand before God, before the Lord Jesus, and account for what we do. Now, this is a powerful and moving passage. It settles us, it steadies us. Let me conclude with what Paul says in verse 12. I think he says this, and this is our passage next week, I think there's just a little danger when you're on this great stuff in Philippians 2 that you're away up in the clouds. It's wonderful stuff. Verse 12, he brings us back down to earth and he says, Therefore, my dear friends, and there's such sincerity in what Paul says there, isn't there? Therefore, my dear friends, come on, you Philippians. Come on, he says, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is watching. For it is God who works in you to will and to act 
according to his good purpose. Let's pray together. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all that I do and say. May the word of God enrich me with his truth from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God my Father in my life forever reign that I may be come to comfort those in grief and pain. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek to make him known so that all may look to Jesus, seeing him alone. Lord Jesus, we pray that this attitude of servant-hearted, sacrificial love for one another, the absence of pride, the absence of conceit, an attitude that issues in our actions would characterize this church and all of our lives and we pray that for your glory for the sake of the gospel and do so in Jesus name